You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2022 on Monocle 24. And a very good morning to you. We are live in London and you are with Monocle on Sunday. I'm Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's programme, my panellists Stephen DL, Tessa Shishkovitz are around the desk here in Studio One in London. Stephen, hello. What do you want to talk about today? Good morning, Emma. Good morning, everyone. Um, well, as those of you who knows, know that I follow Russian things will not be surprised, my week has very much been taken up with following what's going on in and around Ukraine, so I'm sure we'll be talking about that. It gets another angle when President Putin on Friday went to uh, went to China and um, his, his supposed best friend Xi Jinping he talked to. Um, other than that, um, uh, I would love to talk about Scotland beating England at rugby, but I probably won't be allowed to. No. Um, uh, and there's a wonderful uh, story from Japan about dealing with dementia. Thank you very much indeed. In Monocle's Swiss HQ, Emily Isahau from ETH Zurich will be bringing us his view. Emily, good morning. What's making the news where you are? Good morning, Emma. So, of course, happy to talk about um, the increasing tensions between Russia and the West from a Nordic perspective. But also today um, we're celebrating the Sami National Day, so honoring the indigenous um, communities of the Nordic countries. So a lot of the Nordic papers are taking stock of their situation in today's society. Thank you, Emily. We'll be checking in with Monocle's Tyler Brule from Sam Moritz. Our news editor, Chris Chermak, will dial in from Kiev and we'll get the latest news from our woman in Thailand. Sawadee Ka, this is Gwen Robinson for Monocle in Bangkok and today I'll be talking about the impact of the intensifying civil war next door in Myanmar and also we'll take a look at Thailand's super-ageing population. It's the 6th of February 2022, live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday. So a happily busy little programme to get stuck into. Let's head straight to San Moritz to hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule, who joins us from the slopes. A very good morning to you, Tyler. I've got my wellies on because it, and proper southwester weather here in London. Do I trust it's crisp, clear and gorgeous where you are? All of those things and much more. No <laughs> slopes, at least no slopes for me because it is a, it's a very busy weekend. We touched on this topic a couple of times, uh, Emma, over the holidays. Uh, this is record season. We're talking about numbers in terms of hotel occupancy, restaurant takings, which are 20 to 25 percent better than any year in the history of this alpine uh, resort. So I'm staying off the slopes as a path today. I'll be up here for a few more days. So as we move into uh, the weekdays, people hopefully returning back to their desks in Switzerland as well. Uh, the Federal Council having said it's, um, it's time to, uh, to get back into an office mode here. Uh, so hopefully that will make for, for slightly uh, emptier slopes as well. Brisk business indeed. Isn't it strange that we're now com- having conversations about there being too many people out and about? Yeah, imagine. I mean, who, <laughs> who would have thought, right? Uh, but anyway, it, it is good. It's, it's just, it was interesting sort of looking at um, the takings even from our, our own little retail network around the world. And you, you get a sense when you look at... Yeah, cafe numbers in, in London and just, just, of course, just down the street uh, from where you are in the studio. It was lovely. We had you know, other neighbours coming around saying, oh, it's incredible to see how busy the cafe has been because that's meant an uptick also in the sales of our neighbours who are selling swimwear and 
uh, footwear and, and other things as well. So um, you know, these, these maybe these, sometimes these, these rather small markers are quite useful as well to see where we are. I haven't quite um, bought the next bikini yet, but um, but flight, <laughs> flights flights <laughs> booked. <laughs> Not there yet. I'm on my way. Um, flights are booked. Tickets are booked. Everything. I think everybody is bouncing up as much as they can in the world at the moment. And it's so it's just joyful, isn't it? Um, look, one thing that's absolutely joyful is I'm looking at um, the latest edition of Monocle magazine. And it's um, it's a glorious little thing, not least because it's it, too, has got a great marker to uh, to sort of celebrate. Well, yes, this is uh, yeah, the, the one that you have uh, in hand at, at the moment is issue. 150. So, yeah, of course, a, a great number. Um, but uh, over the next few weeks, it will really be the official 15th birthday. So that will be issue 151, uh, which we are. Uh, hopefully, there's you, you hear the pitter patter of feet um, in the floor above you. Uh, colleagues getting that issue out the door. We'll head off to our printers in Germany uh, on Tuesday. Uh, we'll hit the presses. We should have, uh, I think, an issue, but in in hand a week from Monday. But what's great is it really looks back at 15 years um, of the, of course, the, the development of, of our business. Um, and what's, what's curious is we launched at a time, we came out in 2007, um, and then you could say that, you know, not just media, much of the world hit the wall in 2008 with, of course, uh, the financial crisis of that period. So it's, it's interesting. We're, we're in a very similar period right now that we have this 15-year marker, and we as a media business also re-enter the world uh, or, or at least venture venture back in the world in a bigger way um, off the back of a similar crisis. So it's also, it is a look back at, at what happened. Where are those businesses now? Where are those leaders now? What happened? And so this is um, it's a really sort of wonderful spool back through history as much as also this futurist, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it um, more over the coming weeks, but also just even where some of the, the colleagues, the editors, the correspondents, um, the people who are in business, um, where are they now uh, 15 years later? It must be interesting. I wonder, do you draw direct comparisons between what people went through in 2008 onwards and try to see if there's any pattern that could be um, could offer inspiration or hope to people trying to um, emerge from what's been happening in the last couple of years? Absolutely. And I think you know, the one thing that we identified then was there was that great rethink in probably 2009, a lot of people who'd been tethered to desks uh, at big financial services companies, people working in a corporate world. And I think what we saw then, and it's something we've been chronicling ever since, of course, you know, were people going to hang out their own shingle, to set up their own table, to you know, go and open their own businesses. And so that, that notion of, of the small startup, uh, but not just the tech startup, but any, any startup, um, has been very much a part of, of, I think, I would say almost our editorial backbone. Uh, in a way. And I think we're in a similar period now. Uh, of course, people thinking, you know, this was maybe a great run that I had this particular company, but I've seen that I can work remotely. Uh, what does that mean? Or I've seen maybe the impact on my community. Uh, so does that open up, uh, you know, a window for me to think about something new in retail? Maybe I don't completely buy into the narrative that the whole world uh, is going to have everything, you know, delivered to their home um, in a cardboard box multiple times a day. Uh, and so I think that is going to be probably, if we look ahead right now, you know, a big part of how we're going to be deploying our editorial resources. It's interesting to know that that you know, speaking to other friends and family around other areas of of the media, it's true to say that so many now are wrestling with actually a, a sort of a, a reluctance to get back into the office and to traipse across a big city to get into a newsroom. Um, 
And it, do you find as if a sort of monocle is, is slightly a bit of a, um, a sort of an outsider on what is possibly not necessarily a good path, but monocle is just saying, right, no, come on, we've got to get back to where we were. And when you get out there, that's where you get the really good stuff. Well, absolutely. I think there's two things. I mean, there's one is just being out in the world and, and reporting. And that is something that we've done throughout this period and have managed to, to find our ways, you know, our way in and out of, of countries. Um, I think we've been we've been pretty good at also making sure that we've you know had a lively editorial floor. So I, I just feel fortunate that we've had you know of course a, a group of colleagues who have, you know, who believe in the power of being witness to what's going on in the world. As you said, though, there's that other side of of of, of the newsroom and and that that exchange of ideas. And of course, you can you know be on a small screen with ten other pop up windows with you know with ten other editorial colleagues bashing around an idea, but it's just not just not the same. You don't get the sense of when someone you know, recrosses their legs or, or, or folds their arms over. You know, all of those great things that happen in a story meeting, you just you just lose that, um, of course, in you know in a digital environment uh, when everyone is talking uh, down the line. So it was, it was I was talking to um, the CEO of one of Germany's bigger newspapers on Friday, and he said that is just the one thing that they're really having to to bash uh, not all of their editors, but you know many of their editors over the head with to say, if we're going to be one of Germany's newspapers of record, that we have to get back into our groove, and that groove means getting back into the office and doing what we do as journalists, and that is you know pitching ideas, fighting about those ideas, standing up for what we believe, and it should be on page, on screen, uh, or of course over the airwaves. Let's move on to the Olympics, Tyler. I come from a country where our weather predisposes us to neither understand nor um, really appreciate the glory of the Winter Olympics. Uh, we don't do snow very well here. Um, <clears throat> you, on the other hand, are an expert. Tell us, um, have you been watching it? Well, I, I was catching highlights as part of you know, part of the Beijing opening ceremonies and the games in general. You just you do want to to look away, uh, and and it's just you know, here I am. I'm chatting to you, you know, from a terrace high above the lake in Samarit, you know, looking at a, a village which is just covered in snow and, you know, and a very small town, which, of course, has, has hosted the Olympic Games twice. And, and then we're looking at pictures this morning of, you know, completely green mountains with, you know, artificial runs, uh, winds that are too high because they've, you know, I think what they, they've canceled the downhill now four times because they, they built the runs in, in just the wrong place. If you were going to run these as a proper commercial venture. You probably never would have built them there. But of course, this has been so manufactured um, just as much as the, as the opening ceremonies have been. So the, the one thing I sort of I stood back from all of this and thought, you know, we've also had, you know, we've got, we've got Milan and Cortina coming up as well, uh, of course, as, as the next round of the Winter Olympics. And it just made me think, don't we need to get back to a world of Innsbrucks and Lake Placid and Sagmoritz's? cozier you know villages which are built for alpine sport and and maybe you know maybe part of the you know the revolution that needs to happen is that you know, it shouldn't be a beijing with a city which has nothing to do um with with of course with alpine sport at all and and this is where you know on one side we can point the finger um certainly at at china and maybe its performance but you have to look not too far from where i am right now you have to look to lausanne and, and the HQ of, of the IOC. And, and of course, you know, maybe they have to be thinking about what does a bid look like? Do they need to be lowering their targets and, and actually getting back to center 
when it comes to hosting a proper winter game. Absolutely. Right. Let's finally talk about your column this morning. Um, <laughs> talking about being being the upstanding citizen that you are, Tyler, um, picturing you picking up masks from the from the train stop in 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 Zurich is 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 a lasting image that will carry me for the rest of the day. But you've you've been dealing with some antisocial behaviour in your neck of the woods, haven't you? <laughs> I have. I mean, if, if part of it. I was well. Go back to the masks first. I mean, of course, you were you were with us in London. I mean, in, in Zurich, not too long ago, uh, as as well. And of course, uh, I'm I'm always amazed by you know, do people have like six or seven masks in their pockets? And it is incredible. I think people don't throw them on the streets and so. So I just think you know, you go and reach for your Kleenex, the mask falls out. So, you know, all over the world, of course, we have city, city, city streets littered with masks. That's one thing. I sort of take it upon myself to, to go and bin these things. Um, but but the, the, the flip side is I just wrote today about this problem we've had at our local uh, station. Uh, you've been to um, my, my patch of, um, of, of, well, of, of, down, of the world of down the lake from Zurich, where I am. You know, it's a very nice, you know, little community. Uh, it, it's certainly not... Um, you know, a, a banlieue uh, sort of, you know, fraught with, with problems. And uh, so just over these past few weeks, we've had these sprayer attacks where just you've had, I don't know, is it, is it a group of three, four uh, sprayers who've come into, uh, you know, our, the neighborhood and just completely cover the entire station. So every sign, uh, you know, glass walls, which are used as wind and sound protection, everything sort of completely covered. So I, I you know, a few weeks ago, I rang the... the with Federal Railways, you know, you can upload your pictures. And I thought, this is not going to go anywhere, and I won't hear from anybody. And what was amazing was, you know, within the span of, of really seconds, one of those acknowledgement notes, yes, you know, you're, here's your case number, someone will get in touch. Well, that's also not going to happen. But by the time I, I was, I think it was on the tram to do this very program, someone, a, a real person had written back with their name, said, you know, if this happens again, great to upload your picture, just call us directly so we can intervene. Okay, again, nice, nice that it was, of course, acknowledged and there was good customer service. The amazing thing, Emma, was you know, within the span of 48 hours, the entire station has been completely restored to normal, everything removed, which was remarkable. But sadly, um, yeah, the, the little brats came back and attacked the station again. Um, and then in a swifter, you know, in a period of probably, I don't know, 18 hours, then the SBB, the Swift Federal Railway, has to come back again and completely clean the station. You know, at enormous expense, uh, and it's just so it's, it's been sort of fascinating to watch. But what we need to get to is um, it, why why does this problem exist? And when I one thing I left out of my column is I, I spoke to uh, one of the uh, one of the, the local police. And they said, well, you know, the, the issue is as well. You know, there are many communities where a lot of these kids have very you know parents who are up you know respected lawyers, and uh, and they can also get off very very quickly as well. Tyler, we'll be joining you hopefully at the end of the programme Well, I'll be challenging you to come up with an Olympic sport that you want to take part in this next week. Uh, but Very for the good. moment, from, <laughs> from his Irian San Moritz looking out across the lake, that's our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Thank you, Tyler. Let's uh, look in the studio now. Stephen DL, Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor, and Tessa Shishkovitz, who's a UK correspondent for Austria's Profil magazine. Good morning to you both. Good morning. I hope life is well with, with you. And in our Zurich studio, I'm joined by Emily Isaha, who's a programme coordinator for peace mediation at Etihan Zurich. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. Emma. How is Zurich this morning? I hate to continue rubbing it in your face, but it's absolutely beautiful. The sun is out. It really feels like spring has come to Zurich in Switzerland. Okay, that's quite enough of that. Thank you. <laughs> um, St- 
I think we should we need to sort of deal with with Russia, didn't we? Because this is something that obviously is has been moving and and there's been this sort of geopolitical cat and mouse game for the last for the last week. Um, who wants to kick off with it? I mean, Stephen, uh, Russia analyst, give us your take on the last seven days. I suppose the highlight of the last seven days, in a sense, was um, President Putin going to Beijing, not only for the start of the Winter Olympics, when many other countries weren't sending diplomatic representation, um, uh, to shake the hands and smooth with his um, with his Chinese counterpart, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping. Um, but um, it, it's that is so much flannel. I mean, it, it, this this idea that, that the leaders of Russia and China are great friends is complete nonsense. First of all, dictators don't have friends. So neither of them really have friends. Neither of them can, can trust anyone who's around them. Um, certainly Putin definitely can't. Um, and Russia has always and always will be terrified of China because China has an enormous population with something like 1.4 billion. Russia's population is 140 million. So it, it, it's a vast difference. And yet Russia geographically is a much bigger country. And there's always been this worry going back centuries, and particularly in the last century when as, as China got stronger, of thinking, well, if China, the population gets so big and they need more room, where's the place they're going to go? They're going to go north. One of the arguments that Putin puts forward, and it is a complete uh, false flag when he talks about, oh, the fear of NATO. He's not frightened of NATO. He knows NATO is not going to attack Russia. Um, it's that he can't give up Ukraine because he thinks Ukraine is still a part of Russia. But it, it, the, the argument is that, ah, well, that would give NATO a 1,200-mile, um, almost 2,000-kilometre border with Russia. China's border with Russia is more than twice that. Um, so this idea that they're great pals and they're going to work together, um, the, 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 one of the things that really puts the kibosh on that as well is that when, in 2014, Putin went to China um, after the uh, seizure of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine, and uh, he came back saying, we've got this wonderful gas deal with the Chinese. The Chinese kept them talking till 2 o'clock in the morning, knowing that Putin had to fly back that morning to Moscow and had to be able to say, I've got a deal. And the deal that they got, when the oil analysts and gas analysts looked into it, they saw that actually it costs Gazprom money. Russia is paying China to take its gas. Isn't it astonishing, um, Emily, listening to that, uh, the fact that Russia, in Stephen's view, can be played? Because at the moment, we are all looking at Vladimir Putin commanding respect and the ears of the of, of you know world leaders tomorrow we have Emmanuel Macron going to have a word with him the next week we have Olaf Scholz going to plead their case and suddenly you think that it's interesting Stephen saying actually Russia can get it wrong and can be on the back foot here that's right I mean it's a risky game for Putin to be playing with but one thing I do think he uh must be at least uh, to some degree satisfied with this uh, that he is now again quote-unquote back in the big league um, uh, kind of wrestling in his own weight category because of course there has been when you look at Ukraine um, a peace process ongoing uh, for instance under the auspices of the OSCE the trilateral contact group and Russia I think has been very uncomfortable with this format because they've been in a way reduced to talking uh, with their counterparts in Kiev rather than their counterparts in DC or in Berlin and then that's why I think the Normandy format is comes more naturally to Putin um, and Russia, but perhaps also looking ahead into the future, they would like it to be expanded to include the United States. And again, 
have those conversations at that level um, in what they perceive to be um, their own weight category. But of course, um, that's a risky game as well. And Tessa, and despite the fact that Stephen is saying that Russia and China are not necessarily the best of friends, but they did put up a decent show on Friday, didn't they? I mean, to to sort of make NATO or make the rest of the world think, oh, hello, here's a rather particular autocrats club that we're looking at. Yes, but we have to really put up a spin alert here because if you look at the actual communications that they put out, the Russian one looked very different from the Chinese original. And uh, in the Chinese communication, the word NATO wasn't even mentioned. So the whole idea that we picked up from the Kremlin spin, that they are sort of speaking out big time against NATO expansion, uh, further NATO expansion, is not something that the Chinese saw at the same importance in what they were communicating. In their communication, she was talking a long time about uh, United Nations as a sort of basis of of international cooperation and and structuring and about uh, sports cooperation. And the usual sort of the Chinese are much less um, aggressive in their communication uh, than the Kremlin. The Kremlin got all of us talking about uh, how his um, wonderful new partnership with China works. Although I would be, as Stephen already said, very doubtful that she sees it the same way. Let's hear now from our uh, news editor, our man in the Ukrainian capital, um, Chris Chermak. A very good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Emma. From your hidey hole in Kiev, uh, just listening to what everybody's saying there, it's like spin alert, says Tessa. Um, where you have been has been arguably the centre of diplomatic spin for the last week. It has. There really have uh, been a ton of leaders coming through Kiev in the last seven days. We have, we've had leaders from Poland, from the UK, from the Netherlands, from the European Union itself, uh, as well as Turkey. So it has been a very big uh, week for President Zelensky here. Uh, one thing I wanted to briefly jump actually on from what Tessa was saying, just to also to comment on this, you, this sort of China-Russia meeting, when you're in Kiev, if I, what I find very interesting is there is also sort of a a real disappointment, if you will, with Russia, uh, and, and not just with Vladimir Putin, but with its people, if you will, that they are not standing up to this uh, more, more, more directly. And part of that is because there is a feeling here that, you know, Russia, at the end of the day, is European as well. And it's the same thing that Ukraine, of course, has been pushing for for these last uh, eight years or so to sort of join the European, Western European fold. But there's a disappointment in a way that Russia is not following suit and that instead it is trying to sort of point to its ties with China. And just as Stephen and Tess have been saying there, that's not really where their alliances should naturally be. Stephen, what are your thoughts on that, that Russia is looking the wrong way? Oh, I, I definitely feel that. I mean, um, I've used the term sad often as someone who's spent their whole life working with with Russia, in Russia, with Russians. Um, I, I find it desperately sad. I've had some of the best times of my life in Russia and with Russians. They're a fantastic people. Um, but Chris is absolutely right. But I can see why. The, 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 the last time there were really big demonstrations was 10 years ago. Um, after what had clearly been rigged elections to the parliament, the Duma, in December 2011. There were, there were big demonstrations in 2011 into January 2012. And then, uh, they, the, because also they, they knew that Putin was going to be re-elected again as president. 
And since he's come back, the screw has been turned and turned and turned. There were big demonstrations, uh, for example, pensioners went on the streets to complain about um, the, the pension age being raised when they say, well, we haven't got any money to pay pensions. When they know that there is this elite around Putin who are just obscenely wealthy because they've stolen everything from the state uh, and then they, t they have the cheek to say there's no money. So there is this undercurrent of, uh, of resentment. One area where it's been seen in, in recent months is the low take-up of vaccinations. They say the government lies to us and therefore we're not going to have the vaccinations. Only about a third of Russia, the Russian population have had a, an, an anti-Covid vaccination. Um, so there is this feeling, but many of them have been cowed as they were cowed in Soviet times. What I find fascinating, as, as I can go back to Soviet times and lived in the Soviet Union uh, for some time... Um, is, is seeing how even the younger generation have, have taken on board this idea that, um, you know, the state big brother is there and is watching us and we, we'd better keep our heads down unless something really, really dramatic happens. Um, Chris, let's come back to you in Kiev and uh, not just having the focus on Russia, but having the focus on Ukraine. Um, the, the magnet, the pull towards the European Union is arguably getting stronger and stronger um, as the troops amass in the sort of the horseshoe shape around the north and the east of, of, of Ukraine. Um, how much is this focusing minds on accession to the EU becoming a member of NATO? The two things that Vladimir Putin over the road doesn't want, ha doesn't want to happen at all. Well, it, it is focusing minds, of course, but I think one of the points that you get so much here in Ukraine uh, when, when you speak to people is that their minds have not been focused on this only in the last few months of these tensions with Russia. Their minds have been focused on this for the last eight years. So given that, I have to say, when I spoke there of the sort of disappointment towards Russia, there is also a certain amount of disappointment uh, towards uh, the European Union uh, in terms of that, you know, accession talks have not gone as quickly as people here in Ukraine would like. This idea that the EU and NATO still have to speak uh, also to help out, uh, if you will, to ameliorate Vladimir Putin to say, well, you know, NATO is not on the table currently, even if we're not taking it off the table completely. All of this is a little bit of a disappoint disappointment, of course, to Kiev. The other aspect, obviously, is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The biggest disappointment you hear here is, of course, with Germany, not only because it is not sending uh, weapons, not willing to send weapons to Ukraine, but also just generally the idea that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was started, the deal was signed back in 2005, but the pipeline itself was started in the middle after the annexation of Crimea. And that's something that people don't really forget here, that Germany and the European Union supported that and have not suspended it yet. Uh, so th the one thing that I would say, and this is then less EU accession, the main country that you hear here, interestingly, that is focused on as very much a positive really is the UK, Emma, uh, where you are. The, the UK is the country we have heard also on the streets here the most uh, talk of, you know, thanking us for, for the UK's support or thanking my colleague Paige Reynolds, I should say, as a British uh, person. Um, and I just found that quite fascinating because, you know, Boris Johnson was here, uh, obviously, this week as well. So much of the focus in the UK was on Partygate and all the parties around COVID and whether Johnson will survive or not. Here in Ukraine, he is seen as quite positive, particularly for what has happened in the last month. The amount of military aid that the UK has offered here, anti-tank weapons, as well as about £2 billion uh, pounds loan for the Ukrainian Navy, 
Um, so those are things that are really seen positive in the UK is actually the European country that is singled out more than any other uh, in many ways for helping. Of course, also the Baltics and Poland are singled out as well, but they, of course, don't have the size, the firepower that the UK has to help Ukraine. I'm delighted to hear that we are doing something right finally on the world stage. That fills me with joy. Um, Tessa, <laughs> you've been monitoring what London's been doing, but also let's just build on a little bit on what both um, uh, Stephen and Chris have been talking about, which is we've heard about Nord Stream 2. Um, Germany is in this really tricky situation, isn't it? We have Olaf Scholz, who is very, very much playing the kind of the... the the sort of the very subtle, the the non-committal part, which arguably people say he's a, he he has learned from his predecessor, but it what nothing was helped this week was it by the former Chancellor Gerhard Schröder um, signing up to be on the board of directors of Gazprom. I mean, how many people would have just smacked themselves over the forehead and just went really now? <laughs> well, I mean, Gerhard Schröder has become so toxic, and when he says uh, Wandel durch Handel, so uh, change comes through trade, people are really laugh out loud cynically. So he, in his 77th year, has become really um, a liability for German foreign politics. Uh, but of course, Olaf Scholz has the problem of the long-standing social democratic Ostpolitik um, that was always trying to find a balance and not uh, not an aggressive stance. And I think what this crisis uh, has shown now is after a week where the whole German uh, social media was asking, where is Olaf Scholz, that he actually has to come back on stage now. So Putin, in a way, also forces the German, the new German government now to take a clearer stance. So Scholz is going now to Washington to see uh, Biden. Then he will go to Moscow to see Putin. Um, I don't think he will change much in terms of sending weapons to the Ukraine. So Boris Johnson might win on that thing. But Germany always points out that they are actually the biggest financial uh, contributor to this. And I think it's a little bit unfair to, you know, um, to only bash Germany because after all, there's a historical connection also of being a bit reluctant to put put boots on the grounds anywhere there in Eastern Europe. But it's also that they have to balance out these huge uh, interests that the German population has, has in the winter of energy, soaring energy prices. And the new chancellor is also trying to keep his uh, his ratings up and they are very going down rapidly and fast now. Emily, um, from your position at Etihar and Zurich, where you are pro programme coordinator for, for peace mediation, I mean, how are you looking at this? I mean, I don't know, even how, know how to describe it. A, a, a constantly liquid cat's cradle of who says what, where to move, where. I mean, I, I can't imagine what your drawings must be like at the moment, Emily. What, what are you concluding from all this, which even of his moving so quickly? <laughs> That's a good question, Emma. Um, a lot of things. I, I guess uh, one thing I, I would point out is a bit kind of what are even the options um, in terms of the way forward? How could we solve this situation if we got really creative and then built some confidence between Russia and, and the West speed, particularly on Ukraine or more broadly when it comes to European 
um, security and, and, and peace architecture. So I think there are at least four or five maybe options. Um, one is, of course, uh, for the West to give Russia what it wants um, in terms of doing away with this open door uh, policy of NATO. But that's, of course, something um, that the West would not want to do in terms of establishing a precedent of caving in um, for Russia's demands. There could, of course, be a stronger, a stronger threatening of military action um, by NATO. Uh, but again, this would involve quite a few, four out of the five non-nuclear states. So again, a, a less likely of an option. Um, thirdly, perhaps uh, one could uh, look at appeasing Russia, be through um, pushing Ukraine to commit um, to neutrality or forcing Ukraine to implement some parts of the Minsk agreement in a way um, that's acceptable to Russia. But again, I think this is really a non-starter in Kiev. Um, so really, I think the only two options we have left are actually what we're seeing at the moment. So one is to kind of increase the cost of military action by Russia. So kind of arming Ukraine or um, putting forth sanctions regimes. Uh, but at the same time, and, and, and this is where your question comes in, um, Emma, is the f last one is to engage in discussions. Again, the first four options are really uh, not ideal. Um, so to really seriously engage in discussions on limiting uh, of military exercises, troop deployments, information sharing, even perhaps some constraints on uh, NATO enlargement, or at least timelines for that. And this will take tough negotiations and exactly which format is the right one. Um, that can be debated, um, but again, the key big players in terms of superpowers um, will need to be part of those talks. Finally, briefly, Chris in Kiev, what are you looking forward to this week in Ukraine? Well, uh, in that sense, I will be looking forward to uh, Olaf Scholz, I think, to jump on that, uh, even though it's about a week away. Just, just to comment on that, I think it's interesting bringing in that diplomatic angle. There is one take I read in Germany that Olaf Scholz has always been somebody who takes his time, even as Hamburg mayor. He never really waded into something until he really had some sort of solution, really, really had his ideas very fixed. So I think it'll be interesting in my mind to see whether there is any truth to that when it comes now to Ukraine and Russia. As Emily was saying there, it's, it's now time for diplomacy, for talking. Olaf Scholz is very late to the game. So can he bring something different to those discussions when he goes to Moscow, uh, when he goes to the US this week, and then when he goes, comes here to Kiev after all of those? Chris Chermak in Kiev, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for the moment from uh, Stephen D.L., Tessa Shishkiewicz and Emily Isahau. You'll be uh, joining me in a few minutes' time as we take a look at some of the other stories uh, making the headlines. But let's cross over to Bangkok now. Uh, Monocle's correspondent Gwen Robinson joins me. Uh, good afternoon, Gwen. <laughs> it's lovely to have you with us. Um, tell us what's making the headlines in your neck of the woods, please. Well, it's been an odd week. I guess... Um, you know, there's always uh, there's always a lot of minor headlines about Thai politics, which has been seething along with sort of a lot of manoeuvring in the ruling party and a lot more excitement now because it looks like the Bangkok gubernatorial election is going to be on and is possibly going to happen in the next six months. No one's sure of any dates, but um, uh, it it does seem to chime at the moment with a a new kind of energy in the atmosphere because Thailand has finally, after all this stop and start, has finally uh, dealt with this um, uh, COVID restrictions on tourism and uh, they seem to have their act together, uh, well, for now anyway. So the long quarantine periods and um, 
very rigorous testing uh, regimes have been reduced once again to just a 24-hour quarantine and a check back in after five days. Um, that seems to have actually um, uh, actually kick-started a new wave of, of tourists coming in. Uh, we'll see what happens next, but so far so good. Um, but I guess the really big story, uh, both in Thailand and around in, in this immediate region, is really Myanmar and its um, endless slide downwards uh, after its coup one year ago. And there was uh, just recently the one-year anniversary of the February 1st takeover, uh, Mart, uh, with, um, with a lot of protests and a lot of nervousness in the region about accelerating military action against dissent. And uh, we've seen, for example, refugees coming in to Thailand. So I'd say that 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 actually has been a big story in the past week. It's an unusual thing, isn't it? So much of the focus has been on the plight of the people in Myanmar, the fact that they have been subject to quite astonishingly brutal crackdowns and... Yet, you know, there's this there's this appearance of, to all, to all intents and purposes, of calm in Myanmar as a junta um, sort, sort of keep a lid on everything. But we can't underestimate the, the, the overspill and the effect into the rest of the region, can we, Gwen? Well, absolutely not. And I can say I've just been along the Thai-Myanmar border and uh, seen the fallout there, including refugees and a lot of comings and goings across that very long, porous border with Myanmar. But uh, as I... I uh, noted in some uh, coverage of the of the period, I know from extensive conversations with people living in Yangon, these are business people, middle class. There is this surreal, bizarre disconnect, I think, uh, where you've got life sort of lurching along in a, in a bizarre new normal where, you know, people are going about business, but explosions are happening every day now, um, all kinds of... Um, uh, devices um, mainly aimed at government facilities, and then um, uh, in the countryside, you could say in some parts of the of the country, it's absolutely raging civil war. And I think the United Nations uh, just last week uh, marked the anniversary by actually stating that they um, they saw it now as a civil war. That really worries Thailand. You can imagine, as I said, they're just reopening their tourism there absolutely struggling to get um, foreign visitors back to the country and uh, these kind of headlines about refugees coming in or even indeed lingering COVID concerns is um, is really uh, c concerning I think uh, both private and public sector and that goes for the region I mean you know none of the countries bordering Myanmar are very happy but I think the whole uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations you know the 10 member uh, regional grouping, the leaders there are also very happy with what's going on. Uh, tell me a lighter story, Gwen, um, about the, the falling birth rate in Thailand. Oh, well, yes, that was much to uh, uh, my surprise. We've, we've been hearing for quite some time, actually, that Thailand is amongst uh, the Asian countries that are, are seen as, um, as now sort of on that ageing trend. But uh, I actually did a double take when I saw the headlines uh, this morning, but um, uh, the latest population statistics indicate that Thailand is actually one of the most rapidly aging uh, countries in Asia. And uh, in fact, uh, it's now being put into a category called super aging. Um, so that means that last year, for the first time, uh, more people uh, died than uh, were born. And I think um, Thailand's now facing quite a serious uh, serious um, population decline or at least ageing um, issues. Um, of course, 
ties being ties, there's a lot of publicity about the, the bright side of this, which is that I must say that a lot of industries have swung behind products and services for the elderly. So we've got, you know, all kinds of new uh, trade fairs for elderly products that help um, the elderly in all kinds of ways. And I think uh, elderly nursing homes are also a, a bit of a new growth industry. So that also shows how resilient this country is. It will always find a, an opportunity in in some of these trends that aren't necessarily positive on the surface. Do tell me that you've been to an elderly trade fair, Gwen. I actually haven't yet, but my <laughs> colleague did, um, because, of course, um, you know, one of my my day job is uh, working with Nikkei Asia, and, uh, of course, the Japanese are also very concerned about taking care of elderly, and uh, so I think there's been a lot of interest from Japan in sort of these sort of products like with bang new, you know, special toilets for the elderly, mobile ones and other products. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that Thailand has a good market in, in some of the more ageing societies in this region uh, for that kind of thing. Frankly, I'm terrified about a whiz-bang toilet, but for different reasons. Gwen Robinson in Bangkok, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. To mark our 150th issue, Monocle magazine is bringing you a February edition that's spry, wry, witty and wise. Our first ever humour special meets satirists with the guts to take on governments, suggests that mirth can be as meaningful as anger and knows when to crack a smile. Elsewhere in the issue, we hear from Prime Minister Sanna Marin on brand Finland and report from Ukraine on life lived in the shadow of conflict. Plus, the inspiration and insight on where to visit, shop and dine this year. Not to mention our celebration of the most alluring and ambitious town halls which inspire the cities which they represent. The edition is on all good newsstands now, or you can order a copy of Monocle's February issue today. Subscribe so you don't miss an issue and get instant access online at monocle.com. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio here in London, Stephen DL, Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor, and Tessa Shishkovitz, who's a UK correspondent for Austria's Profil magazine, and Emily Isahal, a programme coordinator for peace mediation at ATH Zurich, is holding the fort for us in Dufourstrasse 90. Um, Emily, tell us what uh, what's caught your eye today in the Swiss press. Um, so in the Swiss and, and, and actually Finnish press as well um, that I've been uh, reviewing this morning, well, there's, of course, the famous Amazon uh, Jeff Bezos Rotterdam Bridge story that I'd like to come to if we have time for that. Well, this but is the dismantling I- of a beautiful bridge in order to get his mega yacht through it. Absolutely. So the kind of iconic, uh, historic, the Hef Bridge, which is one of the only uh, historical bridges still um, in place in Rotterdam, uh, has to be dismantled in order to make way for Jeff Bezos' 430 million euro um, bridge, a uh, yacht, uh, the, which will be the world's tallest um, sailing yacht with massive masts. So these masts are so tall um, that the bridge needs to be dismantled for the uh, yacht to be able to pass through the city out into the open um, sea. And an actually interesting thing I picked up today um, in, in Fortune magazine, um, they had calculated and, and found out that one third um, of American 
American bridges are failing at the moment, and they had done the calculations. So Bezos could, in fact, replace um, all of these bridges in the U.S., um, still get his yacht, and he would still be left with $118 billion. Um, so this was just an interesting <laughs> curiosity in, in, in the news this morning. Um, but no, I, I did really want to talk about um, the Sami people, um, just even for a moment, since today is really um, the day that we mark the Sami National Day. So the indigenous um, people of um, the northern parts of the Nordic countries. So for those listeners who are not so familiar um, with the Sami, they're around 10,000 in Finland, um, 30,000 in Sweden, and 75,000 in Norway. Um, and this day has been celebrated since 1992. And what I thought interesting about this um, year's celebrations was actually the main newspaper in Finland, Helsing in Sanomat, the editorial page was in Sami, in fact, in three different um, variations of the Sami language. Um, and then in Finnish, of course, they had the same editorial. But really, the main argument was that um, Sami is an important part of uh, Finnish society and the diversity um, that they bring is absolutely um, vital. And this um, was contrasted with the historical perspective. Of course, um, the communities have witnessed a lot of discrimination um, over the past century, um, not least in terms of um, boarding schools where um, Sami children uh, had to forcefully to speak Finnish uh, and, and not their mother tongue um, and land rights remain an issue. Um, there's the ILO Convention 169 um, that still hasn't been ratified in Finland and in fact Prime Minister Sanna Marin established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, just last September to look into these past atrocities. But against this backdrop um, actually uh, what was nice to see in the newspaper today was to showcase uh, what a modern Sami phase in today's society looks like um, and, and, and there was a lot of discussions of different professions of course reindeer herding remains of crucial value to the Sami community uh, but perhaps two um, curiosities uh, related to this on, on, on the lighter side of things um, so of course there's a very harmful stereotype of, of, of the Sami being uh, rural um, uh, communities uh, not perhaps so um, tech savvy, um, but in fact this has not been the case. So the Sami were the first ones to really adopt snowmobiles as, as they hurt their reindeers um, several decades ago. And recently, partially due to climate change, so there's of course less snow um, and the period when you can really use the snowballs is shorter. Um, so this makes it difficult um, for reindeer herding. And some communities have adopted drones um, to help with this. And drones that can uh, let out um, the sound of a barking dog to really mimic a, a dog accompanying a snowmobile um, in, in, in the effort to herd uh, reindeer. So again, a rather curious uh, information, uh, but a nice way to portray again um, the diversity of the Sami in today's um, Nordic countries. Emily, it sounds blissful. Um, I, I read somewhere that if you are, let's say, a reindeer herder, in, in a Sami reindeer herder, and you, you go off and you look after your reindeer, um, when you say you're going out to work, you could be gone three hours, you could be be gone two months because you just have to go where the reindeer go and and in a day in an age where we are constantly texting each other and emailing each other saying where are you what are you up to you know it, 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 it's there's a, there's a delightful sense of freedom isn't there um tessa the fact that no one is texting you to say are you back for dinner you can just go off and say really sorry but the reindeer have turned left yeah, yeah. If the reindeer get their Shabbat without any um, <laughs> <laughs> texting, that's a very good thing. And we should take their example and also take a, a, a day off sometimes. 
Let's have um, a little bit of a focus on uh, the elderly. We had Gwen Robinson in Bangkok talking about um, the fact that there have been elderly trade fairs, which just fills me with absolute joy. I can imagine they're really, really quite good fun because everybody's into making life more comfortable. Um, one, uh, one lady who is 95 this year and is celebrating uh, 70 years on the throne. I mean, my goodness, there's, I don't think there's any need for the Queen to be sort of dealing with elderly trade fairs at the moment. We are in for one massive of celebration. You've been writing about it this week, haven't you, Tessa? Yes, like everyone, all correspondents here were busy writing about uh, especially the pudding competition. Uh, as an Austrian, obviously, <laughs> I look at the uh, British uh, dessert culture with suspicion. Uh, but she got yesterday, the Queen got yesterday already a Victoria sponge cake in, because this was created for her predecessor, Victoria. She also got a coronation chicken salad, uh, a new take on it yesterday night in Sandringham, meeting the original cook. You can just one. imagine her saying, oh, come on. Yeah. You know, Please, after 70 After years. 70 years, she you also, give me a coronation chicken sandwich. I think she also didn't eat it, actually. She Neither walked away I. from it, as far as I <laughs> read now in the papers while we were talking. But I would sort of, if I would be asked to do a pudding for the queen in this competition that, uh, that was um, now running, um, I think I would sort of play around a little bit with an Austrian strudel with a British take, maybe one of her favourite liquors inserted in it in a way or something like that. I'm coming round to your house for lunch. Yeah, I can't tell. I had strudel for my wedding breakfast. Um, Ooh, I did. Emma! <laughs> I did, and the schnitzel. Um, <laughs> it actually reminds me of when, when my father and my mother first married in the 1960s, my dad took my mum to Austria and basically took her to a conditorei, to a cake shop. And you see all these uh, these sort of gravity defying feats of architecture that are that, that, that are that, that are you know Austrian cake culture. And he basically looked at my mother and just went that please. Um, and and she took one look back and just went no, I'm not going to do that. But she nonetheless did commit herself to a lifetime of baking. Emily, we are now so we kind of need my mum in the room to talk about this. Um, Emily uh, over in in Zurich with a pretty impressive uh, cake culture. Let's be said for in Switzerland. Um, how are you viewing the idea of a, a there's a big competition going on here in the UK to come up with the Queen's uh, Jubilee pudding um, obviously we've we've got a pretty low bar that we've got to pass here Victoria sponge cake and a coronation chicken um, where, what are the, what would the Swiss be doing here well, actually, I think that's just from a, in a way, a PR perspective for the UK. This is, I think, a brilliant idea. We've all watched the Great British Cook-Off. And, and, and um, so, again, I, I think not a bad idea from a PR perspective. Myself, uh, I'm not sure what the Swiss would do, uh, but perhaps my go-to dessert, if I if I have a fancier dinner, I, I'd like to make a, a mango white chocolate cake. So I wonder if I could turn that into some kind of a pudding dessert uh, for Her Majesty. We're playing to our strengths here, aren't we? Emily has just worked out. <laughs> he knows what he can cook. So this is what we're going for. Stephen, I've just let you loose in the kitchen at Buckingham Palace to come up with a, to come up with a cake for, uh, for, the, for the Queen's Jubilee. Well, for me, it would, it would have to have lots of cream, whatever it is. In fact, um, uh, one of the first, when, I, when I did a German course many years ago, a short German, one of the first phrases I learned so I could go into a cake shop either in Austria or in Germany and ask for the creamiest cake and say, mit Doppelsahne bitte, which is twice as much cream. So whatever it's called I, Schlag, isn't it? Well, it depends. If it's you are beaten. in ah. Vienna, you'll be sent out of the shop if you say that because it's really? Schlagobers ah, well, in Vienna. In but it, of course, Sahne is the official. <laughs> word for it. 
We're talking German. only in German are there two different sorts of words for cream, and that sort of suggests that how it shows everything. That's all we need to know about. Um, Stephen, a little bit earlier on, we were talking, uh, Gwen Robinson was talking about this, this, this care for the elderly, which is becoming such a focus in, in Thailand because of an ageing population. You spotted something in the paper um, reflecting on what's happening in Japan. Yes, um, I'm trying to get away from the British papers in a way because they're full of either cake and the Queen or um, no disrespect to the Queen or Boris Johnson and plenty of disrespect to him. Um, so I've been looking at the weekend edition of the New York Times, um, uh, which has on its front cover a, 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 I thought, fascinating story called Digital Eyes on the Elderly. And it's about a scheme which at the moment is... Um, being put in, into operation in the city of Itami in Japan, whereby you can actually effectively tag your elderly relative if you think that they're beginning to suffer from dementia. And there are even, it talks about in the story, just one suburb, uh, um, um, Itami's Osaka, so one suburb of Osaka, Itami, where there are more than 1,000 sensors lining the streets. And so if they go wandering, as sometimes people do with, with dementia and they don't know where they are, then... Uh, th they will be picked up, they will be tagged. And so if you, you, you find, oh, my God, you know, I've got, where's, where's mum or dad? You ring the police and you say they've gone missing, presumably you give the number of the tag or whatever, and, and they find them. And it's, it's a story saying how someone was found 17 miles from home because he'd begun to, uh, he'd wander. That's some wonder. And that's if, some, you've got all yeah. those, if you've got all those sensors, were any of them switched well, on? Uh, well, presumably the sensors switched on, but, you know, do you immediately ring when you, you know, maybe you're out and you, you come home and they might have gone out two hours before or something. Um, so I don't, I don't know the, the, the details of that, but it's just, it's an interesting way because it brings up so many questions. Um, you know, is it Big Brother watching you? Um, on the one hand, so is it a, um, a restriction of freedom? On the other hand, is it um, a common sense way to to look after older people who, uh, you know, very sadly might suffer d from dementia? Um, by coincidence, uh, I'm, I tend to be rather slow watching new films, and um, only this weekend have I seen the film The Father um, mm -hmm. with. Um, um, Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins um, uh, uh, playing brilliantly as a man clearly suffering from dementia but not wanting to admit it. And the way the film jumps about and you, you, you begin to wonder what is real and what's not and what has he witnessed and what has he, what's he heard. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very slow in saying it's a brilliant film. I don't, you know, it doesn't take me to say for people to recognise that. Um, but I just found, so I suppose I had it in my mind and when I saw this story from Japan, I thought, yeah, and, and of course I'm not getting any younger either, which um, um, I think, you know, keeping the brain active is something that is essential for all of us as we get older. If, uh, if the worst comes to us, we can always attach a tag to your ankle. Um, I'm delighted to say we are joined by our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. He joins us for the last few minutes of today's programme. Um, Tyler, welcome back. We're talking about uh, a story in Japan that, that Stephen was mentioning about uh, the way that you can monitor the elderly if they go for a, a little bit of a wander. I mean, what are your thoughts on tagging grandma? Well, I'm out for a, wa I'm out for a wander now. My grandmother is 103. Um, we, we know exactly where she is, so... <laughs> I'm going to be inbound uh, to Ottawa in a few weeks uh, to, to visit her. But for my column today, just going back to uh, the problem with graffiti here, we, one of the issues is you know, Switzerland is very surveillance phobic. So I'm not sure if tagging granny would fly here because you know, anytime anyone wants to whack up a camera, and of course we know in London we have tens of thousands of them, it's not the case uh, in, in Switzerland. But I think the idea of, of somehow allowing people to have the dignity of mobility, great. 
my, my one question though is always, you know, where is the human factor in, in all of this? Because at the same time in Japan, you also talk about robots, you know, also being able to lift people out of beds and all of these types of things. I'm not sure if that's entirely a way forward uh, in, in a humane society. I would, I would arguably agree. Furthermore, if I ever attempted to tag any of my elderly relatives, I know what would happen. Um, it wouldn't be pretty. Um, I mean, listen, <laughs> Tesca, Tessa, um, talking about you know, sort of surveillance and what have you, we, we have Austria moving into a really odd position now with mandatory vaccines and, and this, that and the other. How much is this becoming a sort of a, a wider issue that's meriting discussion? Well, let's first see uh, how it goes in Austria with the mandate, because it is in place now since uh, yesterday. Uh, but it will only be, you know, penalties will only be handed out from March on when the pandemic, I guess, will not be as much in the forefront of our discussion as it is still now. So it might come actually too late to help for the Omicron wave. Um, there's one million Austrians still not vaccinated. So these are the ones that are targeted of, um, of the adult population is not vaccinated. So these are the people who are targeted by the mandate. So we'll see how it goes. I think in Austria, as you know, we always have a little bit of a authoritarian reflex uh, to our population. And it, and it sometimes uh, in history, it, it worked brilliantly. Uh, if it works this time, I'm not so sure. There's a lot of resistance against it. People don't pick up their letters and they don't go now when they're being called. And I doubt a little bit that there will be huge fines. I mean, look at the debate here in Britain uh, with the penalties that were handed out for breaches of the corona restrictions. And now the big question is if, if the prime minister uh, uh, gets now also a penalty notice uh, for breaching the, the rules that he made. So I think in all Maybe this... Maybe he needs a tag. He probably gets a tag soon. Um, we've got a minute and a half left of the programme. Uh, I did mention that we would be going uh, a bit Olympic by the end of it. Tyler, uh, you've just signed up to be part of the Canadian-Estonian team. Uh, what, what's, what's, what, what strengths are we playing to with you? Are you on the slopes? Are you out? Are you icebound? Are you, uh, what are you doing? I'm not, I'm not sure if there is a uh, raclette in the sunshine um, category, but I, I could lead on on that uh, with a maybe sort of a, a nice merlot or something from Ticino. I, I, listen, I would go hockey. This is you know I played hockey for a long time. I, I think I could get back on the skates um, and maybe do my bit for either for either Canada or Estonia. Wonderful, um, Emily. You you're now uh, so so Tyler's in charge of the raclette and the hockey. Mm. What what's the what's the finished contingent doing for, uh, for for the for the Winter Olympics? I would like to also say hockey or to make my kind of newfound Swiss identity uh, proud and say slalom or downhill skiing. Wow. But I would actually go with curling. You know, you can have a drink on the side, <laughs> brush some eyes and, and, and take it easy. Um, there's, of course, not no way meant to undermine the sport of curling. Wonderful. But let me say curling. Curling for you. Uh, Stephen, probably if you can get this down to one word, I'd be grateful because we haven't prepared for enough time. Mm. I'd be curling too. Curling too. Okay, I'm seeing something happening in the when we're all in the same room very soon. Emily and Stephen, get your brushes ready. How about you? 
I think as an Austrian, Buckelpiste, the Moguls. You go down over... The, the Buckelpiste? Yeah. Wow. That's a serious one. <laughs> That's a decent one. But very quickly, have you got much experience in Buckelpiste? Yeah, I'm Austrian. I was on skis when I was two. Okay, fine. I think Tessa's just won that. <laughs> <laughs> She's won the whole Olympics. My thanks. Uh, the warmest of thanks to our editorial director, Tyler Brule. To my guests in the studio, Tessa Shishkovitz, Stephen Diel, uh, Emily Isahauer in Dufourstrasse 90, Chris Termack in Kiev and Gwen, Gwen Robinson in Bangkok. Thanks to all for taking part. Thanks also to our producer, Marcus Hippie, and our studio manager, Nora Hull, and Desiree Bandley in Zurich. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend, whatever you may be doing, if it includes Bockelpista. Listener.